a secret organization reprogramming people for the wealthy elite and the seedy underbelly of a quaint American town. Today we're going to dig deep, pull apart, and reflect on the first episodes of two very different TV series. We'll start on Sci-Fi's Dollhouse, and then we'll explore the CW's Riverdale. It's going to be an interesting debut. My name is Chris, and this is Consuming Creativity. Dollhouse is a science fiction TV series set in the modern day and written by Joss Whedon. It was produced by Sci-Fi in 2009 and ran for two series. The series stars Eliza Dushku, Tamo Pennicott, Frank Kranz, Amy Acker, and Olivia Williams. As a disclaimer, I adore this series. I've seen it a number of times and I have fan art based on it hanging on the wall next to my bed. For the purposes of the episode, I have tried to keep myself as unbiased as I can, but I wanted to be upfront about my enjoyment of the show. This is the last part of the episode that is going to be spoiler free. From here on, I'm going to be talking about the plot of both series, so you have been warned. Without further ado... The episode begins with Caroline in a room with Adele DeWitt. They have a short back and forth discussion about free will, consequences and responsibility. Overall, this scene doesn't really tell us much, it's just there to be mysterious. It does, however, contain a few things worth noting. At one point, during a fantastic exchange that shows how Caroline and DeWitt are ideologically opposed but of somewhat equal intellect, Caroline says, Have you ever tried to clean an actual slate? You can always see what was on it before. Even though this isn't something you'd recognise on a first viewing, this one line is a great summation of the entire season 1 plotline. I thought that was a really nice touch. The scene ends with DeWitt making a vague offer to Caroline, an offer that it's very clear that Caroline has no choice but to take. Moving on, we cut directly into a motorbike race that ends in a birthday party. We see Caroline, but she's completely different to the previous scene. She's carefree, fun-loving, and happy. She dances with a guy named Matt, and then she leaves. As she walks away from Matt towards the dance floor, there's the really nice moment of her stopping still for a second, her expression slipping just a little before she turns and leaves the building. It's a great moment that shows things aren't quite right. She's taken for a treatment in an unmarked van, the whole time talking about how she isn't sure how to feel about Matt. The only people who actually respond to her during this are Boyd, her bodyguard, and Topher, the tech genius who makes the dollhouse work. Boyd treats her warmly, with interest in her, whereas Topher's answers are uninterested and sure. The implication with Topher is that the sheer number of times he's had to have this conversation with her, and then she's wiped. And for the first time we see Echo, who Caroline has become, blank, empty, and behaving like a lost child. I think Eliza Dushku really manages to capture a complete sense of absolute safety and innocence. She both clearly doesn't fully understand the world around her, but in her ignorance and her lack of understanding feels completely safe. A scene between Boyd and Topher explains the series premise. People have been wiped blank and are now programmed to be whoever the client needs them to be. There's a short discussion about the ethics of it, but the scene doesn't really do much more than introduce the concepts at play. The scene ends nice and succinctly with a great example of Whedon-esque writing. Topher says about Echo, she's living the dream. Boyd asks, who's dream? And Topher replies, who's next? This is a good time to talk about something that's both a benefit and a detriment to Joss Whedon. 
He has a gift in that he's able to write dialogue that is able to cleanly and simply explain some really complex ideas, but the downside is that this dialogue is completely unrealistic. In the previous scene, the birthday party for example, Matt relates his date to the story of Cinderella, saying that she had to leave before the stroke of midnight. Matt's friend looks at him suitably confused, but it doesn't make up for the fact that the whole conversation is really unrealistic. People just don't talk the way Joss writes them in some of his scenes. His direction is incredible, and the cast manages to sell the moment, but it doesn't stop the lines from feeling unnatural. Finally, around a quarter of the way through the episode, we get introduced to our main plot. We meet Gabriel Cristejo and his daughter Davina, who have a really good relationship that's established very quickly in a single phone call, and then his daughter is kidnapped. The scene is portrayed in the same way that a lot of police procedural shows present their pre-opening credits stinger. It feels really out of place to be this far into an episode, but there are reasons for this that we'll talk about later. Next is a great scene symbolically. Echo returns to the room where the mind reprogramming happens and sees someone new in the chair. The newcomer is in pain and the whole room suddenly has a new tone. Without needing to give a single line of dialogue, we have a fantastic metaphor for the dollhouse itself. Our first introduction to the chair is peaceful, calm, very run-of-the-mill, when Echo returned from the party, but now we see it as frantic, chaotic, and pain-inducing. This indirectly mirrors the dollhouse, which is introduced to clients as being an organisation that helps people, while underneath, behind closed doors, is built on a foundation of indentured servitude and mind control. We now get introduced to the first of our series one plot lines. A man named Paul Ballard is in a review meeting where it's revealed to us that he has been assigned the dollhouse case, which his superiors think is a waste of time, but Ballard is committed to proving real. The scene is cross-cut with scenes of a boxing match, which quite effectively shows how Ballard views his job as a fight for control, without needing to explicitly state it or show it during the conversation. My only criticism is that the colour grading on the boxing match is horrific. I can only assume that the original footage was dire. Back to our episode plot and Echo gets reprogrammed. She arrives at the Cristejo house and we instantly see that she's a totally different person than we've seen her as before. Caroline was overwhelmed by her problems with no way out, the girl with Matt had no real problems at all, and now we see Eleanor Penn, completely in control and helping someone else to deal with their problems. I think it's a great decision to show two different imprints in the first episode. Firstly, it shows how talented Eliza Dushku is, and secondly, it shows how effective the dollhouse technology is. There's barely any resemblance between the girl at the party and Eleanor. Her body language, mannerisms, vocal pattern, and her general demeanor is completely changed. Having the main imprint for this episode being a hostage negotiator is a really great choice. The job requires extensive knowledge, a lot of experience, and complete trust from those affected because you don't get a second chance. This is both an incredibly high stakes way to open the show, and also a great way of showing the effectiveness of the technology. Eleanor is completely capable and has no doubt of her own abilities. 24 hours before she was a motorbike riding carefree young woman, but now she's an incredibly experienced, perfectly trained hostage negotiator with not an iota of self-doubt. We're getting close to the halfway point of the episode, and there hasn't been any real introduction of a main series plot yet, with the possible exception of Ballard's investigation, which could lead someone to think that the show will have more of an episodic structure, which to an extent is true, but there are some caveats to this. 
Firstly, the main series plotline actually focuses around Echo and a previous doll named Alpha, and that kind of picks up around the halfway point of the season and takes over the second half of season one. Season two is almost entirely dominated by a very short timeline to get from point A to point B in the main story arc. So the episode structure falls away quite quickly, but it is picked up every now and then as almost a connecting thread. Not a lot happens with Balar's storyline, though he does intercut every so often throughout the episode, so it's worth pointing out that he's driven, focused, and relatively well written. I believe him as a character, which is good, but he is a little bit of dead weight in this episode. In fact, I can easily see how someone would be completely disinterested in his plot for quite a lot of the season 1 arc, as he doesn't intersect with the dollhouse much at all. It eventually reaches some satisfying conclusions, but in this pilot, he's sort of dead air. There's a little bit of writer self-insertion, as Boyd and Topher have a discussion about why Eleanor Penn has glasses. It's very clear Joss Whedon himself is explaining that characters are more believable when they have flaws, but through the voice of Topher. He also describes personalities as amalgams of real people, which I assume is also a technique Joss uses to create his characters, but this detail also has plot implications later. Echo arranges for the exchange of money, but when she sees the kidnappers, something is clearly wrong. She begins to hyperventilate, and Topher radios that something's not good and Echo knows it. The fact that Topher still calls her Echo shows that he still thinks of her as the doll, and not as the personality that he imprinted into her. As a matter of fact, it isn't Echo who knows something is wrong. It's Eleanor. It becomes clear that Eleanor was kidnapped as a child, and one of the kidnappers is also one of the people she's dealing with now. The scene of Eleanor reliving the abuse is very difficult to watch, as Dushku effectively shows how Eleanor regresses to a childlike babbling and switches to more infantile logic to try and process the memories. The line, but he had weight, ghosts don't have weight, ghosts are sheet with holes cut out, is a great example of how she's processing the fear that's resurfaced by thinking through the experience and trying to reduce it to less scary and more real terms. Boyd confronts DeWitt about her decision to wipe Echo back to her blank state, and there's a fantastic piece of direction as the interplay between Boyd and DeWitt unfolds. When she is in control, DeWitt faces Boyd and she steps towards him while she's speaking. As he fights back, she turns away from him and she walks away. His position never changes, but her frequent shifting shows the turmoil that she's having both in her role in the organisation and about the organisation itself. Echo is not wiped. After a rather cheap Boyd got there too late fake out that is, and Eleanor returns to complete the job. En route, we learn that the person who had been abused by the kidnapper, the real person whose personality is part of the amalgam of Eleanor Penn, committed suicide. It's implied that this is due to her trauma. When Eleanor arrives at the kidnapper's hideout, she confronts her abuser head on. Her first line of defiance directly to the abuser is barely a whisper, which is a great way of showing how difficult it is to muster the strength to push through her fear. She also reuses the line, you can't fight a ghost, which takes on a whole new meaning for us as an audience, since we now know that in a way, Eleanor herself is a ghost of someone we know is dead. A shootout ensues between the kidnappers, and Eleanor rushes to the back to find Davina. I really like the fact that Eleanor doesn't see her abuser die. It's implied up to this point that Eleanor needs to overcome her fear of the abuser, and we, as an audience, expect that to take the form of either directly confronting him or seeing him removed as a threat. But in the final confrontation, Eleanor goes straight for Davina, showing that her actual salvation comes from escaping the cycle through rescuing Davina before the abuse even happens. The episode ends with a rather cliché, killer in a room full of people he killed, doing creepy things moment, but what I quite like about it is he's watching a video yearbook of Caroline. 
The episode itself ends with a shot of Echo in the dollhouse, but with Caroline's voice saying, I want to do everything, is that too much to ask? Which is a fantastic use of young adult optimism and boundless possibility turned on its head in a sort of careful what you wish for type of flipped expectations. It's a really nice way to end the episode. Dollhouse had a difficult time being made, which anyone who has seen season 2 can attest to, but where this is relevant to us is that the first episode, the one that I just described, wasn't actually supposed to be the first episode. When it came time to air, the original pilot was deemed too boring, and they decided to use episode 2 as the pilot instead. The important plot details from the first episode were recut into the second episode, which was then used as the pilot. This explains why there's so much happening in the first part of the episode before we get that stinger scene of Davina being kidnapped. It also explains why Ballard's inclusion feels so clunky and unimportant. These are the scenes that set up the rest of his plotline. In many respects, this isn't the fault of the writing and the direction, but at the same time we need to judge a product by its final presentation. So how does the pilot of Dollhouse stand up? Honestly, I'd say it's a mixed bag. The episode plotline is interesting, and I think they managed to showcase the concept of the series well. By the end of the first episode, you fully understand how the dollhouse works, the benefits and the negatives of the organisation, and you've probably decided you want to see the whole thing exposed. Eliza Descu's performance is incredible in this episode, showing us three completely distinct and unrelated characters, four if you count Echo in her blank state. She manages to show the differences without overacting at all, and keeps them completely distinct. Olivia Williams gives an incredible performance and has an amazingly soft touch when it comes to showing the subtle turmoil that DeWitt has with the whole system. This episode definitely sets up what to expect from the series, from the types of plotlines, the episodic structure and the dialogue. The episode is a really good representation of what's to come, but it is somewhat of an acquired taste. Elements of the episode are chaotic, the dialogue can be unrealistic, and the premise is very high concept. It's not for everyone, that's a fact. What the show does have to its benefit, however, is depth. Even in this early stage of the show, we can see there are both positives and negatives to the dollhouse. The organisation really does help people. Davina wouldn't be with her father, Matt certainly wasn't hurt by the existence of the dollhouse, and while we don't exactly know how Caroline got mixed up in it, the conversation at the beginning of the episode heavily implies that she made some mistakes that the dollhouse was able to solve for her. To some extent, she is there under her own will. And yet, the idea of reprogramming people is something that, as an audience, we have to be morally opposed to. Our whole culture has been gearing us towards individualism and self-expression, and this concept goes against that very ideal. We're in the same position as Boyd, as DeWitt, as everyone we've met so far. How we feel about the dollhouse is personal to each of us, and there's enough evidence given that how we feel can be justified, no matter where we land on the spectrum. I can understand how someone could not enjoy the episode, however. As much as I really like it, the episode is chaotic and difficult to follow. While it does make it clear that Caroline, Echo and the girl at the party with Matt are all different people, it's not actually amazingly clear how the whole thing works. It doesn't make it completely explicit that Topher takes brain scans of real people, smashes and mixes them together to form new personalities, and then programs those personalities onto the blank minds of the dolls, who are indentured people that have signed away years of their life to the dollhouse, usually in payment for some kind of debt or in lieu of some kind of punishment. It does explain all of this in little pieces, but it never actually fully connects them all together, which can make it a bit difficult to follow. Since none of the characters are exactly good people, they're all very nuanced, it can be difficult to root for any of them. 
Echo is a mindless automaton, and the woman she used to be might be gone for good, and even if she isn't, she clearly made mistakes in her life to end up where she did. Boyd might have Echo's best interests at heart, but he willingly works for the dollhouse. DeWitt seems to truly want to help people, or at least is deluding herself into thinking that's what they're doing, but she's also actively trying to cover up the organization's wrongdoings. Ballard is trying to hunt down and expose the dollhouse, but he has some serious anger issues that he's only keeping a thin lid on. So honestly, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I really enjoy it, and I will forgive it for its flaws, but I can understand why it isn't for everyone. Moving on, however, to Riverdale, and I'm going to warn you now. I'm going to be a lot less forgiving. Prepare yourself for that. Consuming creativity is a passion project for me. I make these episodes because I enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy them too. If you do, and you wanted to show your support for the show, there are a number of different ways. If you head over to consumingcreativity.com, you'll find our blog. There's a post for every episode, and sometimes some additional content too. Each of these posts include affiliate links to various different places for books, movies, games, and a lot of other things that I talk about in the posts. If you wanted to explore these things for yourself, please consider using those links. It doesn't cost you anything, and it helps show your support for the show. If you wanted to show more direct support, you can also visit our Patreon page. Patreon is an amazing website where listeners like you can show direct support for things like consuming creativity by pledging to donate a set amount of money every month to support the creation of future episodes. By donating money you have access to some bonuses, such as early access to every episode, a zine with articles on world building, writing and developing fiction, exclusive voting power for future episodes, and even the option to directly suggest the topics. Head over to Consuming Creativity and click on the donate button for more information. I'd also like to take this time to announce that Consuming Creativity is officially a part of the Project Headphones network. Project Headphones is dedicated to providing a platform for new voices and exciting ideas and is managed by a really dear friend of mine. Head on over to the website projectheadphones.com and see what's new. So moving on to the mysterious and drama-filled town of Riverdale. Riverdale is a teen drama series produced by The CW in 2017. It's based on the Archie comics that began printing in the 50s and continue to this day. It's worth noting that there isn't a great amount of similarity between the comics and the TV series, at least from what my small amount of research has shown. The character names and relationships are the same, with some of the same broad strokes, but most of the plotlines seem brand new. So let's get on with this one then. The series opens with a voiceover. I won't lie, this had me rolling my eyes. The voiceover is by a character that we eventually learn is called Jughead, and it happens over a series of shots of the town. It sort of implies that the town of Riverdale is the connecting thread of the series, and that the characters will take a backseat to the location. This isn't the case, at least from what I can tell. The voiceover is kind of ridiculously cliché as well, my favourite line being, Our town isn't like other towns, beneath its nice exterior is secrets. Give me a break. I also have no idea why they chose Jughead for the voiceover. Well, I do know why, and that's because he's writing a novel, which is implied to be the narrative framing device through which we're seeing the story. But Jughead has barely anything to do with the events of the pilot episode, making his voiceover feel completely unnecessary and totally shoehorned in. In fact, spoiler alert, Jughead is only physically in a single scene in this entire episode, and his impact amounts to absolutely nothing with regard to the plot. But apparently, he's our viewpoint character? That makes no sense, but fine. We do have some great cinematography in this opening montage sequence, which at least makes up for the voiceover somewhat. 
In particular, the framing, the use of depth of field, and the colour of the shots of the Blossom Twins is fantastic. The twins row a boat out onto the river, and then we smash cut to Cheryl Blossom being found on the side of the river alone. During the beginning of the search for her brother Jason, we see a man and woman standing by the side of the riverbank, and we get one of the few spoken lines in this opening. The woman says, If he's dead, I hope he suffered. May Jason Blossom rot in hell. Who in the hell talks like that, especially about a missing child? I get that later on we sort of get a reason for this hatred, but this is the weirdest and most unbelievable character introduction I have ever seen. What could a 17 year old have possibly done to elicit such hatred from a grown woman? The voiceover continues and slips from general cliche right into film noir knockoff, with lines like, when a new mystery rolled into town. Unless Jughead is writing a period thriller set in 1920s New York, his writing style is ridiculously out of place. This whole voiceover somehow manages to present Jughead as aloof, out of touch with reality, unreasonably pretentious, and he's supposed to be our viewpoint character? Really? The first proper scene begins and we meet our female lead, Betty, who's first introduced wearing nothing but her bra and having a conversation about how much she likes a boy. I can feel the feminist vibes radiating from her. Honestly, I joke. She's a teenage girl, this is more or less par for the course. The real standout in this scene is Kevin. If it wasn't already painfully obvious that he's gay by the fact that his female best friend has no problem being half naked around him, he refers to Archie as a hetero, he is instantly floored by seeing Archie topless, and his only role here is to give relationship advice to the female lead. If he was any more of a stereotype, he'd be wearing a rainbow crop top and be speaking with a lisp. Now don't get me wrong, I've got no problem with gay men being portrayed in stereotypical ways. Just because I'm a gay man who doesn't identify with a lot of the stereotypical behaviours doesn't mean that those people don't exist and shouldn't be represented in media. My problem is that Kevin is presented throughout this episode as THE gay character. There doesn't seem to be any depth or anything else to his character beyond that tick box exercise, and considering this aired in 2017, I'm really disappointed. Three-dimensional gay characters have existed in mainstream media ever since 2000 with Queer as Folk. My other issue with this scene is the target audience. This is very specifically a teen drama. It is about teens, it's for teens, and while it does deal with some more adult themes than a lot of teen dramas tend to tackle, at least so far as I understand the later plotlines, this scene reinforces one very negative message as far as I see it. Both Kevin and Betty talk about Archie in a number of ways, showing his positive characteristics from a few different sides. That is, until they see him topless through the window. At that point, Kevin at least, seems to conclude that the fact that he has become more conventionally attractive is the crowning, and therefore most important, achievement. Not the kind of message I would want to be sending. On the topic of Archie and judging people by appearances, I would like to take this opportunity to do exactly what I just berated Kevin and Betty for. I would like to judge Archie by his looks. Who in the hair and makeup team thought that dyeing KJ Apper's hair ginger and leaving his eyebrows a deep shade of brown was a good idea? I really hope they got fired for that decision. Every single time his face appeared on screen while I was watching the pilot episode, it was all I could focus on. Even ignoring the fact that the colour ginger they chose definitely doesn't look natural, it definitely does not match his eyebrows at all, it's one of the most jarring visuals. The scene where this becomes apparent is in the diner with Betty. The scene is your typical girl likes boy, girl is too shy to ask out boy, new girl walks in, boy even fawns over new girl. The only difference in this version is that when the new girl, Veronica, enters, she's wearing what can only be described as a large black cowl with a huge hood. 
If I didn't know better, I'd be convinced that she just stepped out of an audition for the Scottish Widow advert and wandered onto the wrong set. We move on into the typical school kids are at school scene showing us your usual high school cliques. Most of this is peripheral background detail, but Archie Andrews is one of the jocks with a capital J. And they spend a good couple of minutes reminding us that they are jocks. All capitals this time. Archie even horrifically uses the phrase wank bank, which I can only assume KJ Apper has never spoken in his life before as the words sound completely foreign to him as he says the line. Betty is showing Veronica around the school, we get some subtle allusions to a secret backstory, and oh yeah, in case you forgot, Kevin is gay. He's gay. Did you know Kevin is gay? Everyone should know that Kevin is gay. There's literally nothing else we know about him, so I just want to make sure you know that his entire role in every scene is to remind you that he's gay. Now, I'm sure that a lot of people will probably think I'm being pretty harsh on Kevin, and to an extent I am. The reason is, I did a bit of research after I watched the pilot episode, and I looked into the original representations of some of the characters in Archie Comics. Kevin was introduced in 2010 as a deliberate effort to show inclusion and to destigmatize homosexuality. Kevin's creator, Dan Parent, won a GLAAD Media Award for the creation, and the issue that introduced Kevin was so pivotal that it caused Archie Comics to run a reprint of the issue for the first time in the comics history. To see a character with that much impact on the representation of gay people in media reduced to only that one facet of his character is almost an insult to the very reason the character was introduced. Instead of destigmatizing homosexuality, the writers of this pilot have isolated Kevin from the other characters by making his sexuality his only defining feature. We have a plotline with Archie introduced that feels like a rehash of every teen drama that ever existed. A jock has to choose between being an athlete or being an artist. Yawn. The only part of this plotline that I actually cared about was the scene of Archie approaching a girl group backstage and asking them to sing the songs he wrote. These girls are wearing cat ears. 17 year old girls wearing cat ears. And they are deadly serious. This isn't some ironic joke, they are genuinely proud of their ears. I can't even take that seriously when I'm saying it. I'm not exactly a 17 year old girl, but I find it hard to take the writing of those characters seriously at all. Oh, and a teacher had a relationship with a student. Ignoring the fact that if the genders were reversed this would be viewed as irredeemable, can we look at the fact that we're supposed to feel sorry for this teacher even though it's a clear case of abuse of a position of authority? It's somewhat implied to be a mutual interest, but that really doesn't matter. She is his teacher and she has abused that position and taken advantage of a teenage boy. Any possible sympathy we should have for her is misplaced. Simple as that. We move into a strange scene of Cheryl Blossom, who had previously given a whole speech about how saddened she is about her brother Jason's presumed death, but she's acting like the typical high school popular cheerleader trying to poach the new girl. Seriously, that's her agenda. It's been, best guess, three months since she and her brother took out a boat on the river and her brother presumably died, and she's here throwing around her popularity trying to convince Veronica to try out to be one of the river vixens. Now, as you can hear, I am a British man in his late 20s. I cannot pretend to understand the importance of high school cheerleading, but I like to think that three months after my twin brother's death, that cheerleading wouldn't be my only driving force. Now, a spoiler here. Cheryl's behaviour could be explained away by the fact that she doesn't think that Jason is dead. She has good reason to think that he's alive, but she has to keep up the pretend, surely. So why does she spend one scene giving an emotional speech about her loss, complete with full black veil, 
and then the next she's acting like there isn't a care in the world outside of not wanting Betty to be a cheerleader. She flip-flops so frequently that I just can't believe her as a character. I'd be less surprised if they found out that Cheryl has an identical sister and they've been taking it in turns throughout this entire episode. Ignoring the borderline personality disorder that is Cheryl Blossom, let's look at Veronica. She explains to Betty how it felt to go through the announcement of her father's embezzlement. This has been hinted at in multiple scenes up to this point, but it's been made clear that everyone already knows what's happened, so the writers keep it a secret from the audience only, which just seems like a mystery for mystery's sake. Anyway. Veronica explained that people used to call her a cold, calculating bitch, and she realised they were right, so she's taking Riverdale as her opportunity to turn herself around. Honestly, I quite like this. All too often we see the rich bitch is horrific and has to be made nice storyline, but so rarely do we see the aftermath of this transformation and the struggle of habit versus intention. I don't know how this plotline develops, but I really like the fact that we're getting to see a different part of an overused plot. We finally see the evil woman who hates teenagers again, and we learn that she is Betty's mother. We get the half explanation that she hates Jason Blossom because he broke her daughter Polly's heart. Whether or not this is true, and let's be fair, a mother's opinion of her daughter's breakup is hardly a factual viewpoint, a teenage relationship is not a reason to wish for a child to suffer and die. I don't know if Betty's mother ever has any redemption in the show, and I honestly don't care. From the moment she appeared on screen, she was beyond redemption to me. We then have one of the most refreshing scenes in this entire episode. The conversation between Archie and his father flipped all my expectations on their head. I went into the scene expecting the stereotypical, you can't do music, you have responsibilities, style argument, but what happened instead is an accepting father, who doesn't really care what his son does, so long as he's honest and committed. This was a genuine and very welcome surprise, I'm going to give them that credit. Another scene in which Kevin shows us he's still gay, in case you didn't know, he even makes penis comments. Shock and horror. I won't rehash what I said before, but I just need to point out that we still have appearances from Kevin that do nothing but remind us that there's a gay character here. At the school dance, Cheryl's choice of song to memorialise her twin brother, can we just point out how weird it is? She doesn't pick one of his favourite songs, she doesn't pick a song that always makes her think of him, she doesn't pick a song they used to listen to together. She picks the song that her parents were listening to when they had sex and conceived him. That is weird, I don't care how you slice it. She just doesn't read to me as believable in any way, not one bit. The song also happens to finish at exactly the same time as Betty and Archie's conversation and a hell of a lot sooner than a real song should have finished, but moving on. Cheryl continues to stir trouble as though nothing has changed at the after party at her house, and in fact it was at this point, when Jason gets brought up yet again by another character, that I realised something. A teenager has been presumed dead, under tragic circumstances, and so little has changed, even within his own family, that we have to be constantly reminded by people in almost every other scene. It's as though if they didn't keep mentioning it, we'd forget it even happened. Honestly, I think we would, that's probably why they keep talking about it. Veronica and Archie get put into a closet for a game of seven minutes in heaven. I have to admit some ignorance here, but this must be an American thing. I see it on a lot of TV shows, but I find it difficult to believe that teenagers would actually get that serious over a game about putting two people in a cupboard together. I mean, is it really that common? If anyone from America is listening, please get in touch and let me know if this is actually something that happens at teenage house parties. 
Ignoring the cliche of both Veronica and Archie saying we shouldn't do this right before kissing, we need to talk about the logic of Betty leaving. Betty gets upset about Veronica and Archie going into the closet together and leaves the party upset. She has no idea anything has happened, showing that she doesn't trust either of them, but I can cope with that as a side effect of Betty being a stereotypical teenage girl. What I don't follow is how Veronica and Archie immediately assume it's because they kissed, which they both know that no one else could know because they were alone. I also love the fact that Veronica, who has known Betty for all of a day, stops Archie and schools him on the best way of dealing with an emotional Betty. Archie has known Betty since they were children, but of course Veronica, with her 24 hours of exposure, knows better. It's worth pointing out that neither Veronica nor Archie actually go looking for Betty, even though they both said that they wanted to. It isn't until Archie has a chat with Jughead, in Jughead's only actual scene, that anyone decides to go and find her. This scene with Jughead blew my tiny little mind out of the back of my head. The character who introduced the entire story to us in voiceover, through whose writing we are experiencing this entire story, has his first on-screen line 41 minutes into the episode. He has all of a minute and a half on screen where he tells us he's writing a novel, to hint that he's had a falling out with Archie, and to give Archie the exact same advice that Archie gave himself in the previous scene. I was waiting for that? Really? What a waste. Archie is lying to someone and I cannot for a minute figure out who or why. He told Veronica that he's never felt the way he was supposed to about Betty, and he's only felt that way about one person, which we're left to assume is Miss Grundy. He then tells Betty that he loves her, but always felt inferior, and that he wasn't enough for her. Well, which is it, Archie? Or is this just the writers needing to shoehorn in a love triangle because that's what all teen dramas have? I mean, it worked for Twilight, it worked for The Hunger Games. Hell, they reused the idea in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Why do anything unique? Our final scene is of Kevin. You remember him. He's the gay one who's really gay, and in case you didn't know, he's gay. Except this time he's going somewhere romantic with another man, how scandalous. And finally, right at the very end of the episode, we have the first scene in which Kevin does something other than remind us that he's gay. He finds the body of Jason Blossom, complete with gunshot. Of course, he does spend 45 seconds prior to that moment reminding us that he's gay. Jughead once again rounds off the episode with another over-the-top voiceover, which leads me to some strange thoughts about the timeline. The final montage cuts in shots of Jughead writing in the diner, and he's sitting in the same place that he was when he spoke to Archie. He's even wearing the same clothes. Does this mean he's writing the entire storyline in real time? In that case, how does he know about Jason's murder? This whole sequence implies that Jughead knew from the beginning that something was going to be revealed. Why else would he be writing a novel about Jason, something he himself said in his scene with Archie? Highly suspicious and an example of terrible writing. It's at this point I'll give one spoiler for the rest of the season and I'll talk about the reason why Cheryl's grief might seem so false. Cheryl and Jason, it's revealed later, faked Jason's death so that he could leave Riverdale without anyone missing him. I don't know the specifics about this, since I haven't watched any further, but I do know the discovery of Jason's body at the end of this episode is not part of what Cheryl was expecting, so I would hope that grief becomes a bit more real for her beyond this point. Someone please write in and let me know if it does or not. So I think it's pretty clear that I don't think much of the Riverdale pilot. 
It has its charms. The mixing of modern day and 50s aesthetic is a great homage to the origins of the Archie comics, and I really appreciate the attention to detail with the references to some of the staples of the comics, such as the diner. The casting is nothing to complain about, and in particular I really enjoy the casting of Camilla Mendez as Veronica Lodge, she does a great job. The writing for the show is a strange mix between teen drama, film noir homage, and ridiculous attempts to be modern and edgy. None of the characters ever really come across as consistent or believable, and the stakes constantly fluctuate between the low of high school drama to the high of a town ripped apart by tragic teenage death, but both levels of drama are treated as equally devastating. In case I haven't made it abundantly clear, I'm really not a fan of how Kevin is portrayed in this episode. I sincerely hope, for the sake of gay representation in modern media, that they develop his character outside of his sexuality in later episodes, but this is a disappointing start. If any other character were being defined in every scene by the fact that they're straight, no one would find it believable or acceptable. Why it happens so often with gay characters, I don't know, especially in a show as recent as 2017. While it is clear that the main plot for season 1 is going to focus on Jason Blossom's murder, the introduction of Veronica Lodge and her mother Hermione also brings with it a plotline about embezzlement. While most of the details of Veronica's father's embezzlement are public knowledge, it seems that the past will come back and haunt Hermione when a package of money turns up at their home. So far we have the two plotlines laid up, and the beginning foundations of a few others, but honestly neither of them really excite me. We have a murdered teenager, but his sister is totally unbelievable, and the only strong reaction we've had to his death is a mother who hoped he suffered. I can't really say that I expect much to be resolved quickly there. Then on the other hand, we have an absentee father who sends embezzled money to his estranged wife. Not really sure what that plotline's going to evolve into, but seeing as how we don't really get to know much about Hermione, and Veronica is all wound up in the Archie and Betty drama, I doubt it's going to get me hooked in. Overall, not great, but let's take a minute and look at what we can learn about pilot episodes from both of these examples. So what makes a good pilot? All stories begin with three important things, the premise, the characters, and the hook. So how do these three things line up with Dollhouse and Riverdale? We'll start with the premise. The premise is what makes your audience decide to watch. When they hear the premise, you want them thinking, I'll give that a try, that sounds interesting. For some shows, that's a really simple premise. CSI is a procedural cop show about forensic scientists. Friends is about six twenty-somethings living in New York. Dollhouse is about people who are reprogrammed to order. Riverdale is about teenagers, murder, a town. Honestly, the premise of Riverdale doesn't seem clear to me, and that's even after watching the first episode. Okay, so that's one point for Dollhouse, but what about the characters? Well, the characters are what make the audience care about the story. The characters are where the heart of the show is, where we invest emotionally into the story. With most shows, there's one or two central characters that we can connect to. In more ensemble shows, you might have more, like Friends is a good example of a six-person cast. Dollhouse has a number of multifaceted characters that are really interesting to watch, but it's difficult to say whether you really care about them after the first episode. Echo is so immutable in her personality that it's really difficult to invest in her. The other characters are all somewhat implicit in the unethical practices that you can't really get invested in too many of them either. Riverdale's characters are less developed in my opinion, but they are somewhat more likeable. Betty is shy and young, but likeable. Archie is a cliché jock, torn between athleticism and artistic expression, but that struggle speaks to enough people that you can connect. 
Jughead's unknowable, and Cheryl is practically a multiple personality case, Veronica is on a redemption arc which inherently makes her likeable, and we don't mention Kevin. So we'll give this one to Riverdale, which makes them more or less even. Finally, we have The Hook. The Hook is what makes the audience hit the play next button on Netflix. If the premise is what makes them pick up the menu, The Hook is why they decide to order. The Hook for Lost is wondering what the characters are going to do in the predicament they're in. For Game of Thrones, it's the pull-no-punches brutality of the world presented. The Hook for Scrubs is the fantastical comedy depiction of the harsh reality of medicine. Dollhouse hinges its hook on its premise. What other situations might Echo be put in? What is the story with Alpha? And will Ballard ever find the dollhouse? Riverdale hinges its hook on the mysteries surrounding Jason Blossom and the Lodge family. Both of these hooks work pretty effectively, they give you questions that you want answering and you know that you'll get those answers eventually. So overall, based on those three factors, the two shows are tied. They both work and don't work in different ways, but I'd like to take a little bit of time to talk about why I think Dollhouse is a more successful pilot than Riverdale. For me, it isn't so much what Dollhouse succeeds at, since I think the premise combined with Eliza Dushku's acting is what really sells the pilot for me, it's more about where Riverdale goes wrong. The season 1 arc for Riverdale seems to be the idea of secrets coming out into the open, the murder of Jason Blossom, the embezzlement of the Lodges, the hinted secrets about Polly's breakdown. The first episode doesn't do a great job at selling such a serious tone. Cheryl's inconsistent grief, even if there is a reason for it later, feels too fake for me to get invested. Miss Grundy taking advantage of her student, Kevin constantly reminding me that he's gay and everything feeling a little too high school drama just doesn't keep me invested in the serious season arcs that they're laying down. The setting doesn't really gel for me either. I didn't touch on this earlier, but it's hard to understand the era that the show is actually set in. It appears nondescript, but then it has very clear 50s set pieces such as the diner, which appear to be brand new as though the series is set in the 50s, while at the same time referencing modern day pop culture as well. While I recognise that the 50s references are to pay homage to the history of the comics, I'd rather see those references aged appropriately to keep the setting in one time period and not strangely split between different locales. The voiceovers bookending the show, they're trite, they're cliche, and they don't tell me anything that couldn't have been told to me in another form. Not to mention that I don't understand why Jughead is the viewpoint character when he has absolutely no involvement in the first episode or any real impact on its events. That's ignoring the fact that he's writing about these events prior to anyone realising there's even been a murder, but somehow doing it in a tone that implies he already knows all about it. It just doesn't click for me. That's not to say that voiceovers are necessarily a bad thing, there are good ways to do a framing narrative, and that's something I'd like to explore in the future. Honestly, I can see why people would watch Riverdale. It just doesn't work for me. To me it feels lazily written, and it doesn't look like it's bringing anything new to the table in terms of ideas or characters. But people don't always want new. Sometimes you want to see the same thing you've seen before, but with different voices. Dollhouse, I think, achieves its goals better, even if it did have some hiccups in production. It isn't perfect by any means, and rewatching it really highlighted some of those flaws to me that I couldn't bring to mind looking back on my first viewing. But it stands out a lot stronger in my mind. I hope you've enjoyed this journey with me as we've sampled a few appetizers, tasted our way through a few dishes, and maybe found out something about what makes the pilot episode really bite. Next month we'll be looking at something completely different in both plot, character, and format. 
I'll be joined by a special guest in August episode to talk about an amazing app called Zombies Run. Spoilers will likely be for the entire Couch to 5k program, so if you intend to use the app, I recommend not listening to that episode until the end of the 8-week program. So thank you for joining me today. Please leave a rating and a review wherever you find your podcasts. Visit consumingcreativity.com for the show notes and for links to our Patreon where you can support the show. And I will see you next month.